0: You're listening to SPHERA Now, a podcast for environmental health, safety, and quality professionals around the globe. This is brought to you by SPHERA, the largest global provider of integrated risk management software and information services, with a focus on environmental health and safety, operational risk, and product stewardship. Now, let's get started. Welcome to the SPHERA Now podcast. I'm James Tarani, SPHERA's content marketing manager and editor-in-chief of Spark Magazine. Today, we have a very special guest on the program, Dr. Robert Ballard. Dr. Ballard is a professor of oceanography at the University of Rhode Island and a world renowned nautical explorer who found, among other ships, the Titanic. He is also a keynote speaker at our INSPIRE conference, which takes place May 6th through 9th, 2019, in San Antonio, Texas. Thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Ballard. It's a pleasure.
1: Great. Um, let, well, I'd like to talk about the news real quick. So the fourth National Climate Assessment came out on Friday. Did you have a chance to look at that at all?
2: I did not. I had, my son brought all of his college uh, graduate roommates to descend uh, upon our house. So
1: <laughs> all right. Well, uh, it it had some interesting uh, thoughts on oceans and coasts. And since you've spent a few days, I think, on the ocean over the years. I just wanted to get your thoughts on climate change and the oceans. Have you seen anything that's noticeable,
2: noticeable changes? Well, well, clearly, since I spent a great deal of time at sea, I've certainly noticed that the ocean is getting more energized. In fact, ironically, my insurance company has just increased the insurance policy on my exploration vessel, the Nautilus, because of the increased uh, incident of rogue waves, so yes the the earth is fighting back if you want want to know the truth it's It's becoming much more energized, certainly people in the hurricane belt and and tornado belt know that, so yes, we're clearly seeing a rapid change in our environment.
1: Have you seen a lot of changes with plant and animal life as well?
2: Not so much where we go uh, our mission literally is to go where no one has gone before in the deep sea. So we're working in very remote areas of the world mm-hmm. and we're working at extreme depths. And, the, and where we go, the water is already is freezing cold. It's typically four degrees centigrade. And that's because that's the densest water gets that's generated to the polar regions. So as long as the polar regions are creating, um, water that's four degrees centigrade uh, above freezing, that falls to the ocean floor. So we will probably be the last to see an effect. I
1: see. And when you're on uh, the top of the water, are you seeing a lot of um, flat-fam and jet-fam these days? Is it getting better? Is it getting worse?
2: Well, clearly, we see massive amounts of plastics. uh, And depending upon where we go, particularly if we're in the central gyre regions, of the North uh, Western Pacific, where the quote garbage patches, yes, you have a tremendous amount of plastics. Even when we worked in the remotest areas, in the island of Midway, for example, where a quarter million lace on albatross come ashore to to nest and, and mate and have a chick, you find uh, a third of those chicks dying from ingestion of plastics. So oh, wow. even in those remote areas. Plastic is reaching everywhere. That's very sad. So you've spent a lot of
1: time on the Pacific Ocean in the last six months, if I'm reading your calendar correctly. What were some of the biggest takeaways you had
2: over the past half year? Well, quite a number, actually. We do lots of, of, of separate expeditions. Our ship, yes, has been at sea almost seven months. We, I just got off of it. I wasn't on for the whole seven months, but we run relay teams. And we do a lot of different programs. Uh, uh, one that we work with extensively is with the government of Canada. And Canada, off the West Coast, uh, is where the Great Pacific Plates are subducting uh, under North America. And that subduction zones can generate... Uh, devastating earthquakes and associated tsunamis. And so working with Ocean Network Canada, they've installed a warning system to be able to give them warning if the plate should suddenly move to uh, warn their people, their citizens, particularly in the west coast of Canada, like Vancouver, that a tsunami may be coming. And so we we work with them on this, uh, constantly keeping this warning system up to date, and they also use it for long-term studies. So that's a, a major program. We also did a big program with NASA
3: mm-hmm.
2: uh, off the island of Hawaii, which, as you know, has been quite active volcanically. Sure. And NASA uh, is working with, uh, with us to uh, find life elsewhere in our solar system. When we first discovered hydrothermal vents, In 1977, I was the co-chief scientist of that expedition. Mm -hmm. We discovered a whole new ecosystem living not off the energy of the sun, as we'd learned in our biology books, but living off the energy of the earth itself and driven by a a primitive bacterium that had figured out over eons of time how to duplicate photosynthesis in the dark, a process we now call chemosynthesis,
3: Mm -hmm. and we
2: believe that they, we will find life elsewhere in the universe, even within our own solar system, because of this discovery. Uh, for example, there are, throughout the solar system, there are moons of Jupiter and Saturn that have more water than Earth. Two particular moons, the Jovian moon uh, uh, Europa and the Saturn moon Enceladus, our ocean worlds covered by ice but we believe they have similar conditions to the ones we discovered in the Galapagos rift and then in fact we will find life fairly soon and certainly within the next generation within our own solar system and so nasa was using our program to develop the technologies to find those uh, hydrothermal vents on those two moons so that was a pretty exciting program.
1: That's really cool. Um, I know in the past you've said that we spend a lot of money looking for uh, life in outer space and so forth, and we don't spend as much uh, resources kind of exploring our oceans. So have you kind of met in the middle there and come to grips? Is that what this is all
2: about? Well, no. This is They have a lot of money, and they, they help support our program. Uh, but no, I I do not believe there's a plan B for the human race. I do not see humans in any large numbers leaving this planet and living on something like the moon or Mars. Why would you want to go there when this is the prettiest planet around and there's no other one within reach? So I do not believe in a, in a plan B, mm-hmm. and therefore I think it's critically important for our planet to understand how it works. So we can learn to live in harmony with it, which is not what we're doing right now. Another important thing that we're involved in is exploring the 50% of our country that lies beneath the sea. We own more land under the ocean than any other nation on Earth. In fact, half of our country lies beneath the sea, and we have better maps of Mars than we have of half of America. So we've been charged by NOAA's Office of Ocean Exploration to really conduct the modern-day version of the Lewis and Clark Expedition, except with one key difference. Fifty percent of our team, our core, are women in positions of leadership and authority. So I like to refer to it as the Lewis and Clark Expeditions, (laughs) and that's what we're doing right now.
1: So tell me this. When you're um, exploring underseas, how often are you saying to yourself, what the heck is that? Give me an expert on the phone right
2: away. I need to talk to someone. Constantly. In fact, we call it telepresence. What we did is we made a promise, and a pretty uh, important promise, and very risky at the time, that we would deliver the best mind in America to the site of discovery, no matter where, no matter when, or no matter how deep in the ocean within 30 minutes, that if we find something, which we constantly do, because we're going where no one has gone before, so we're naturally stumbling across things all the time, we reach off our ship with a high-bandwidth satellite system, and we've built at the Graduate School Oceanography URI what we call the Inner Space Center, much like Houston has for outer space. We have the Inner Space Center for our Inner Space Exploration. Mm-hmm. And we're able to network scientists to the bottom of the ocean in a fraction of a second. So basically, it's it's uh, the concept of telepresence is much like the the movie Avatar, where Jake left his body and entered a Na'vi's body. So humans uh, cannot live in uh, in most uh, most of the Earth. Ninety five percent of the human race mm-hmm. lives on less than five percent of Earth. So the only way that we can actually go to these other places is by putting our spirit in another end-effector, another robotic device that can live in these harsh worlds, and, and that's what we're doing. So we literally are spending most of our time out of our body. Is that through the, the Jason, Jason machine? Well, it's, it's Hercules, is the vehicle system we have now. Hercules. It's similar. I built I built the original Jason uh, many years ago, but I have a modern version of it now. On the Her- Hercules, if you go to our website, mm-hmm. uh, nautiluslive.org, it's right now down. I mean, but there's a lot of material that documents what we just did. But every year when we're at sea, uh, we're broadcasting live to the public 24 hours a day, taking questions. Last deployment, we answered 20,000 questions. How many? From people around the world.
1: I'm sorry, how many was that? 20,000. 20,000 leaves under the
2: sea, wow. Well, because we have a team operating 24 hours a day. When you go to sea with these large ships and their assets, and it's totally dark where we go. In fact, if you get my book I just published in Princeton Press called Eternal Darkness, you'll realize that most of our world is in eternal darkness, so it doesn't really matter when we go there. And so we work 24 hours a day and are constantly beaming what we're seeing and doing and our voices and everything is going off the ship live. And you can be a part of the expedition by simply tuning in to NautilusLive.org. And this is also another way to network not only scientists, but to give everyone the opportunity to be explorers.
1: That's fascinating, so talk to me a little about telepresence. So you first came up with this concept for National Geographic in the early eighties. I believe, so tell me a little bit about how telepresence has evolved and how it helps people keep people safe because they're not having to go down in these submarines on these two three
2: man missions or whatever it is yeah you know, for many many years, I'm actually getting go I've been at this for fifty five years. I started my first expedition, maybe it's even more than that now to do the math, in 1959, so it's been almost 60 years. Uh, I uh, spent the first quarter century of that and literally getting in a submarine and going to the bottom of the ocean. Mm-hmm. So I spent a tremendous amount of time in all sorts of submarines, both Navy ones when I was in the Navy, but also research ones, including the the submersible Alvin. And what's frustrating about this, although we made wonderful discoveries and was quite an experience for a quarter century, uh, you spend most of your time going in an elevator. The average depth of the ocean is 12,000 feet. Mm -hmm. But it gets down to 35,000 feet. But if you just take an average dive, let's say to the Titanic, which is at 12,000 feet, Mm -hmm. It'll take you two and a half hours in the morning to commute to work and two and a half hours to get home at night. So you're spending five hours a day just going to work and coming home. When I dove to 20,000 feet, it took me six hours each way. That's 12 hours. There's not a whole lot of time left to work at the office. So in 1979, I... Uh, took a sabbatical and went to Stanford.
3: Mm-hmm. And
2: I was teaching geophysics at Stanford. And I saw Silicon Valley beginning to explode. I saw microprocessing, digital imagery, fiber optics, all of this new technology that has so altered our lives. I saw in that the opportunity to replace my physical presence with a telepresence, that I could build a technology that would fool my mind. Mm -hmm. into thinking I'm there. Remember, your brain is deaf, dumb, and blind inside of your skull, and it's fed information that then uses it to visualize the world around us. Mm -hmm. So what we can now do with high-definition television, force feedback, manipulators, and on the list goes, we can now fool you into thinking what your eyes are seeing, you are in your own body, but in fact your eyes are in a robot. And so that's what we've done is we've built this technology that when I'm operating it, I am convinced I'm down there. In fact, in discussions with our legal counsel, they said, well, we need to talk to you about this because if you get this better and better, Mm -hmm. you're going to get people having heart attacks because they'll think that shark's going to eat them. (laughs) And so you need to get them to sign forms, which we (laughs) have that does not hold us liable should they die of a heart attack, even though what scared the crap out of them was 4,000 miles away.
1: So it's sort of like the silent films with the train coming at the patrons and they all freaked out back in 1910, but now it's 3D sharks?
2: Well, actually, uh, if you look at the uh, Air Force that are flying drones in combat— Those operators, although they're in New Mexico, are given combat pay because it's that stressful. They're that convinced they're engaged in the battle.
1: That's amazing. So let me ask you this. So I read your book, Return to Titanic, not too long ago. And there's a figure that you had in there that there was a million shipwrecks at the bottom of the sea. Actually, the U.N. says there's three million. Uh, that's what I was about to say. So I did some research and I came up with three million, and I my jaw just dropped. And I said, "Why does anybody want to go on the water if there's three million
2: uh, uh, ships at the bottom?" So, um, well, most of them, most of them were sunk a long time ago. Uh, there's much less ships sinking nowadays than back then, uh, because they didn't have the technology or the safety that we have now. But yes, the the deep sea is the largest museum on earth. There's more history in the deep sea than all the museums of the world combined, and we're only now opening that door to that museum. So actually, that leads me to my question, though. So what are some of
1: the most important maritime advances from the 20th and even 21st century that help keep people safe on the seas?
2: Well, GPS. Obviously, they now know where they are, and they they now have maps that tell them where the rocks are. So, I mean, the ability to not run around. Certainly weather forecasting. The ability to know Mm -hmm. that that the weather is coming. I know on our most recent expedition, we had to hide, literally hide from two hurricanes, as they approached Hawaii, but we knew they were coming, and we were able to go and hide. So the ability to hide is certainly at that. And You know, our ship thinks it's on, on land. You can Go in our ship, pick up a phone as if you were in your house, and dial area code number. So it has no idea that it. So I can easily reach off the ship. I can easily get help. Uh, you can even do uh, a remote diagnostics if someone gets injured. You can bring us. You can literally broadcast off the ship uh, the person's uh, body. I mean, you can do amazing remote diagnostics. Is now becoming rather pervasive. Uh, with the use of telepresence technology. So all across the board, we have, I I don't even have to go on this ship anymore. I mean, I I do it almost nostalgically, but I have a command center that gives me everything I want. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I I I spend most of my time, I have, I have two different offices, and each of them have a command center. When I go in it, I'm on the ship. But then I can go home at night and watch the Red Sox or watch the Patriots <laughs> Although I can actually watch him now at the sh- on the ship as well. <laughs> that's
1: great. So um, you once told Smithsonian, you said, during my second cruise that summer, our ship was struck by a rogue wave that almost sank the ship. I was hooked for right. life. So that's sort you of did. a, a <laughs> counterintuitive uh, response there.
2: Have you always well, had, that had was young, for that, that was a 17-year-old at the time. Uh, i'm 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 not so enamored by rogue waves so I'll, I'll do everything i can to avoid them having almost died on the first one so no uh i i love what i do but i i also like to minimize risk there's no doubt that my career has been filled with risks but they're calculated risks but even then one always does everything they can to minimize risk but it's always there
3: So, when you're testing
1: out um, new technology, uh, a colleague of mine asked me to ask you about this. Are you using, like, failure mode and effects analysis on your deep-sea uh, remote-operated vehicles to make sure they're working safely?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Well, here's the real advantage that we have is that we don't have manuals because we built equipment we're using. So imagine if you always had the person, the engineers, that literally built what we're operating. That really gives you quite the edge. And in fact, our engineers can reach aboard the ship, access all of our technologies and computers from shore, and constantly do risk analyses, constantly monitoring. Very, very different than you buying something from somebody. We actually have the person that built it on mm-hmm. board, either through telepresence or physically. So, now we're, we're also been at it for a long, long period of time. And one of the major differences you have in the ocean, for example, that you don't have in space, in space, gravity is your enemy. Mm-hmm. In the ocean, buoyancy is your friend. All you have to do with your robotic technology is to become slightly light, and you come up automatically. So we we always have built-in systems to be able to change our buoyancy, drop a weight or whatever, mm-hmm. and we come home. So the ocean is very... In the, when the deep sea is very, very predictable, the most dangerous thing in the deep sea are shippers, things that are not predictable. I mean, uh, most of my near-death experiences have come with fishing nets and tangling our submarine or something like that. But the deep I, I must say, though, when we first came across the first high-temperature black smoker ever seen, we didn't know how hot it was. Mm-hmm. And when we went over to it with our submarine, I was in a submarine at the time, and we put a thermal probe into the, into the black smoker. It picked off scale, and when we looked, our entire instrument had melted, and our window was made out of the same stuff three feet away. So, yes, there's some times where you encounter new things that you've never seen before Mm -hmm. that turn out to be extremely hazardous, and that's why we now have temperature systems all, all around us to warn us that we're approaching something extremely hot.
1: That's fascinating. So you've had a lot of near misses, it sounds like. So what is the most difficult Enough
2: to make me love robots. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so what is the most difficult decision you've had to make underwater?
2: Well, which one? I mean, uh most of it is pure survival, you know? I mean, where you're trying to survive when you have a fire, for example, I was in a gas and a fire broke out inside the submarine and the only way to extinguish it was to turn off the oxygen, which is what you like to do. And my emergency system, the engineer had failed to turn on my oxygen system. So, you know, a struggle trying to convince him I wasn't panicking. I just wasn't getting any oxygen till he finally realized his mistake and. It's a French gas, and I'll never forget his name, pardon, pardon, as he turned on my oxygen. Oh, wow. Which really made a big difference. So it's dealing, it's always, again, having backups to backups to backups. But again, the biggest backup of all is don't be there
1: in the first place. It's one thing to take personal risks, but it's something different when you're in charge of a crew. So has your risk philosophy evolved over the years at all?
2: Well, I've had, i you know, I'm knock on wood. I hate to say it, but I've brought everyone home in one piece. I've not even broken this or broken that. I'm very cautious. I know where the lines are and I don't cross. them. There, you know, it's just through years and years of 150 expeditions. And, and ironically, I'm most cautious when everything is going nice. When the sea is calm is when I'm most cautious, because that's when people let down their guard. When you're in a raging storm or hurricanes bearing down upon you, you are at maximum attention. Mm -hmm. It's when it's a flat calm is when I'm most nervous, because people drop their guards. And is that a lesson
1: you learned from the Titanic? Because the night the Titanic sunk, it was supposedly very
2: calm. It was a beautiful night and he ignored the warnings. The Titanic sank because of its captain ignoring the warnings, saying, I've done this before. I don't need, I've never relied upon a, a Marconi. Those are just for tourists to send messages home. No, the Titanic was thanked by its captain who went down with the ship. I read that that was supposed to be his last
1: journey. He was about to retire too. That-
2: he, was, he was brought out of retirement to do it.
1: Is brought out of retirement.
2: And no good deed goes unpunished. That's amazing.
1: And so, why do you think the Titanic is so interesting a hundred plus years later? Why are Why are we still talking about the Titanic? Well,
2: it, there's still lessons to be learned from the Titanic. Well, there's always lessons to be learned. But I think the main issue is that it was a slow news day in the world. You have to understand also that you know, here was a ship that was supposed to be unsinkable. Now, they never advertised it was unsinkable, but it was sort of presented as the unsinkable ship. But I think the main issue was, if you go back into that period of time, this was when uh, the wealthy were the stars. Now we have movie stars and all sorts. But back then, the, the the people everyone talked about were the wealthy, the, the Guggenheims and the Astors and the Strausses and these were the, 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 the cream of the cream. These were the, the the royalty of of our country who went down and, and it was the Edwardian era. We were the world was at peace. There wasn't a whole lot going on. Mm-hmm. I mean just remember that just a few years later the Lusitania would be sunk and, right. and suffer the same amount of casualties, the same number of, 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 of wealthy people. And it almost went unreported because it was war, World War I. Where they were dying in the trenches in France. So there wasn't a whole lot going on. Plus, it was straight out of central casting. In the, in the case of the Lusitania, it sank very quickly. In the case of the, of the Titanic, it, it this drama. Acted itself out on a stage in a calm sea as the band played on, and the captain said "be British," and, and the crew stayed at their uh, in the engine room. It was it was just you know look at the movie. It was straight out of Hollywood. Uh, the the o- owner of the ship, the builder, uh, uh, left. Uh, Ismay got off the ship. And mm-hmm. Children in third class died. It was just. Every there's something about the Titanic that hits a button in every person, a different button, but it hits a button. Well, the thing that surprised
1: me when I was um, doing some research for this interview, I was always under the assumption that they didn't have enough lifeboats, which is true, but apparently they had more than enough for what was required at the time.
2: Well, they, they were legally right. They didn't have enough for everybody, but they had, legally had enough. But, but I think the important thing that's is, is lost, they couldn't even get the, the, some of the final lifeboats off the ship because they were running out of crew. Every time they launched a lifeboat, a percentage of the deck force has to accompany the lifeboat. They have to lower it. They have to take command of it. So every every lifeboat that launched took away from the deck force. You can't have the steward's department down in the kitchen come and launch lifeboats.
3: Mm-hmm. So
2: even if they had all the lifeboats in the world, they still would not have gotten uh, them all
1: launched in time. So take me back to before you found the Titanic. I'm curious how much research you do on these ships before you actually go trying to find
2: them. Well, I won't uh, go unless I convince myself I can do it. I mean, I'm not in the business of failure. Uh, You don't sustain a career of the many years that I have by failing. Now, yes, if I failed... In initial attempts to find the Bismarck, yes. I got it the second time because I now knew where it wasn't.
3: Mm-hmm. So uh,
2: also analyzing the search area, what am I up against? What are my odds? Again, I've passed on a lot, of, a lot of other hunts because they were just doomed to failure. And so unless they fall within a now the technology is getting easier and easier, I must say. Mm-hmm. I mean, it would be a piece of cake to find the Titanic now. Uh, with the technologies that we have so uh, all those three million shipwrecks are going to find them now as we move away from tethered vehicle systems to, to autonomous systems we're now building autonomous vehicles undersea drones i don't know if you saw the recent article on the small drones they've launched in to orbit around mars these are yeah. very, very getting less and less expensive. The swarming technology of Mars, of, of AUVs, where you have a fundamentally a wolf pack of autonomous vehicles. You send them out like a bunch of dogs and they track it down and come and tell you. So it's, it's going to be a, uh, we're, we're entering now a, an accelerated exploration of, uh, of the earth. Uh, we're going to, uh, you know, the present generation, Mm -hmm. in middle school, when I talk to middle school kids, which is my favorite group to talk to, because they're forming their passions and they're at that innocent stage, I say your generation is going to explore more of Earth than all previous generations combined. That the age of discovery is not in our rearview mirror, it's in front of us. And that's why we need to have kids preparing themselves for this kind of of, of, of exploration, and that's why we are pushing kids to study more in the uh, physical sciences so they can can be a part of that and not sit in the, in the grandstands and watch. Right.
1: Okay, but for you, having a 12-day window to find the Titanic in 1985, how confident were you that you were going to find it?
2: Well, I was obviously very nervous about it, particularly as, as I got to day nine, you know, I had a strategy I dreamed up that was very, very different than previous strategies, and uh, it wasn't working, and then it hit. <laughs> so I, I, I rolled the dice, and uh, it worked. And I've done that before on other expeditions that are less publicized, the, the search for the aircraft carrier Yorktown, the search for the Bismarck, you know, all these things that I undertake— have their risks, or someone would have already done it. And so if you, you you you're constantly looking at it. I'm I'm fundamentally a hunter. I mean, the human race has been around for thousands and thousands of generations, mm-hmm. and for most of those generations, they were hunter gatherers. And I've got the hunting gene. So is it oh. an affected over thousands of generations? <laughs>
1: Is it at all bittersweet for you that you found the Titanic and afterward other ships have gone down and kind of, I don't want to say plundered, but they've taken artifacts off the ship? And I know you're a big proponent of kind of leaving the ship alone. So is it at all bittersweet for you?
2: Well, I think you have to know uh, we can't be Luddites. We we know that technology is a two-edged sword technology has no morality uh nuclear technology can heat your house or blow it up computers can can uh, can free you or imprison you uh so it's really the march of, of technology it's society that needs to be smart enough to understand the two edges to the sword and make those decisions so i'm not uh sad about anything that i've discovered Uh, Yes, I'm sad about what what sometimes follows, but that's in the nature of human behavior. Mm -hmm. And so, until you can change those fundamental aspects of human behavior or put safety nets in to bar against the bad behavior, there you are. I mean, that's just the nature of of the business, but one of the things that is a little disturbing is the speed of change can reach a point of being very disruptive, and I think we're we're getting to that where things are moving so rapidly uh, that we can't, we're losing control in some degree. And so I, I recently just watched
1: the this uh, documentary about the Titanic. I think it was from 2012, and they had this massive virtual hangar. I've never seen anything quite like it before. Are you familiar with this?
2: No,
1: I'm not. Okay, so they basically. I'm not,
2: I don't follow Titanic a lot anymore. <laughs> <laughs> you just moved on. I'm on to other things. I'm on. Yes, I'm on to other things. I, I
1: thought it well. I, I thought it was really interesting just because they had this literal hangar and they could take parts of the Titanic wreckage and put it together, and
2: I, I'd never seen anything quite like that before. Well, it'll go. It doesn't go away. Titanic will never go away i'm hoping that i'll find a uFO and be able to talk about that Oh that'd be cool. Would you come back on the program if you do?
1: I definitely will <laughs> fantastic so I want to talk get kind of take this full circle a little bit so you've talked about in kind of inhabiting the oceans i mean living on the ocean how How likely do you think that is, and what are some of the risks involved in that?
2: Well, I'm, I'm not really proposing that a large number of human beings move out onto the ocean. I'm, I'm not proposing that. What I'm proposing is the dependency we're going to have on being fed. Uh, the, the, the biggest crisis that we're going to hit is when the Earth cannot sustain the human population. Mm-hmm. And the numbers that have been calculated... Are based upon everyone being a vegetarian, which they're or not, mm-hmm. is 10.5 billion people, and we hit that number with present projections in 2050. So within the lifetime of your children, maybe you, but probably not me, uh, we're going to hit the wall mm-hmm. and, and be unable to feed because we're losing our land, the human population. Every time we build a house, it's more than likely on land that could have grown food. And so farmland is disappearing around the world as populations rise, again, remembering that 95% of the human race lives on less than 5% of earth. And that's the 5% that feeds us. And so uh, we need to turn to the sea and move away from hunter-gatherers. I mean, 12,000 years ago, we began to domesticate animals and, and cultivate crops, and we moved away from a hunter-gatherer society to a farming and herding society, and up through that evolved the city-state. In the sea, we are still hunter hunters and gatherings. We are we are killing the, the lions and the tigers and the bears of the sea. We've, we've killed 90% of all the large creatures in the oceans through this hunter gathering. We need to move away from eating uh, carnivores to eating herbivores. We need to be becoming more and more reliant upon farming and herding in the oceans. Let me ask you this real quick.
1: So Malaysia Flight 370, I mean, they still haven't yeah. found that. I don't know if you've been involved at all or if you've been contacted about it, but if you were to try and find it, how would you go about it?
2: Well, as you, as you know, it's a big ocean and it's a big puddle of water. And as I, as I mentioned before, you don't take something on unless you have a high probability. But in this case, they were driven by the situation. Uh, from what I understand, recent information suggests they searched in the wrong place, and that will always guarantee failure. And so I think what what you want to do is to go online and see the second search that's now being mounted, which will probably have a much higher success rate.
1: And the second search would be using what
2: type what type of information that autonomous autonomous vehicles. These are the inexpensive ways of covering large areas, but you have to go to the right area.
1: Okay, Um, I think that's all the questions I had for you. Unless, well, look, are you going to be at
2: my presentation? I certainly am, and then you'll get to see this beautifully illustrated, because unfortunately for 30-odd years, I've had National Geographic at my side, so I do have beautiful images to go along with what I say, so looking forward to meeting you.
0: I'd like to thank Dr. Robert Ballard for joining me today, and thank you for listening to this edition of the SPHERA Now podcast. You can listen to other SPHERA Now episodes at com backslash podcast, or download them on Google Play iTunes, or Stitcher. Thank you for listening.